Well, good evening, everybody. It is good to see you tonight. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking time in the middle of your busy week to, to be here to fight the traffic and to uh, feed the kids, or maybe you haven't even fed the kids yet. You know, maybe you've got all kinds of things that you're trying to juggle this week, but thank you for taking the time to, uh, to be with us tonight. We are talking about sexuality. Our subtitle is The Truth About Sexuality in a World of Competing Ideas. Uh, and as, we, as, as I was sitting there thinking about the way that I wanted to introduce what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to spend a lot of time in introduction. So don't worry, we will get to Scripture because that's, that's where we find the truth about sexuality. So we will get to Scripture, but we're going to spend quite a bit of time in introduction. And as we do, I just kind of want to say at the outset that it's hard it's hard. I'm, I, am, I am completely incapable of giving you every nuance for how I even think, much less how you think or how humanity as a whole thinks or how humanity thought at one time or how humanity thought right now. Yet, even though I'm incapable of doing that, that's exactly what we're going to attempt to, to do. We're, we're just talking in generalities, and I, I just kind of want to put that out on the table. We're talking in generalities. When we talk about the way people thought in the past, or the way that people tend to think today, we're, we're speaking in, in generalities. But I, I hope that what's accomplished, I hope that what we do, is that we, we just kind of pause, and we just start to think about and question the things we take for granted. Because as it pertains to this or any other topic, especially when we talk about culture, or we talk about, we talk about the way that people think in a certain culture or at a certain time, what we're doing is we're examining things that are usually left unexamined. We're thinking about things that, that are usually left unthought about. We're questioning things that are usually left unquestioned. And we're sort of pulling these things out and saying, how, how is it that we are conceptualizing this? Is this healthy, the way that we're conceptualizing this? Is this good? Is this leading towards a better life? Is this true? Is the way that we conceptualize this, is this healthy and good and true? Or is there a better, more healthy way to, to think about it? And tonight we're specifically going to talk about not just sexuality, but self Self. And even that idea, like if I ask you, who are you? Who are you? Now you may think, well, that's an obvious, that's an obvious thing. We all know who we are. We all, we all know how to identify ourselves. We know what a self is. But actually, the way that people have thought about themselves has changed over time. And sometimes we don't recognize that. We just sort of take it for granted that people have always conceptualized themselves and what it means to be a self the same. And that's not true. If you had asked somebody, for instance, in the first century world, in the ancient world, in first century Israel or pretty much anywhere else, if you had asked them, who are you? Who are you? In fact, when Matthew tells us who Jesus is, how does he begin? Does he say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. He was about five foot, 10 inches tall. He had brown hair. Is that how he describes Jesus? No, he starts with a genealogy. None of you would start that way, would you? If somebody said, who are you? None of you say, well, my great-great-grandfather was. You just wouldn't start that way, would you? 
You would talk about what you like, you would talk about your interests, you'd talk about your hobbies, you would talk about things that were personally and individually true about you because that's how we tend to conceptualize the self. But for the vast majority of human history, that isn't how they've thought about themselves. When they've thought about who am I, they've thought about who are they in relation to external things. Who am I in relation to nation? Who am I in relation to family? Who am I in relation to ethnicity? Who am I in relation to my clan, to my tribe, to my group, to my people? They have allowed other people to name them, to say, this is who you are. And then there was all kinds of social pressure to live into that identity. So for the vast majority of human history, it is a very recent phenomenon that we've sort of switched the way that we've thought about the self. For the vast majority of human history, human beings have allowed other people to name them, to tell them who are they, and then they've pressured each other to sort of conform to or live into that identity. Now, that's not all good and it's not all bad. We could probably see that there are all kinds of negative things that go along with that, right? There's all kinds of negative pressure to be something you probably should not be because someone else has named you and you've internalized that identity that someone else gave to you. But we have radically rebelled against that. And we have gone to sort of an opposite extreme. And so in the modern era, we believe that every individual should be able to decide for himself or herself who they are. So much so that, that phrases, cliches that, that, that sort of encapsulate that have become just second nature. We don't even stop to question things like, be your own person. Be your own person. I mean, we don't even stop to think about, for the vast majority of human history, a statement like that would not have even made sense. What, what do you mean, be your own person? How could you be your own person? <laughs> You're connected to family and tribe and clan and group and nation. How could you be your own person? Or we say things like blaze your own trail or think for yourself or follow your own heart or live your truth. This is the way we conceptualize ourselves. Now again, it's not all good and it's not all bad. And there's really no way to break out of that as individuals that it's just the world we live in. That's how we think of ourselves. In fact, I, I tend to think about things in, in terms of story, and, and I think that most people in the West especially, most people in our country at our time, tend to think of themselves as the main character in a story that's about them. Don't you think? Most of us probably think of ourselves that way. We think we are, we are the main character. Now, I don't know if you hear a theme song when you walk down the street or not. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But, but chances are you kind of tend to think of yourself as the main character in a story about you. This is a story about me. And, and everybody else in, in my world are sort of supporting characters. Some of them are my friends. Some of them are my villains and my arch enemies. But everyone in the story, is, it's a story about me. And everything sort of revolves around me and my pursuit of what I want and what I desire and what will make me happy. But this is a, a fairly recent and unique way of thinking about ourselves. 
And, and there are all sorts of consequences that come along with thinking of ourselves in this way. There's a book, and I'm not necessarily recommending it, but a book by Carl R. Truman. Uh, the book that he wrote is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And here's one of the things, he's a historian, but here's one of the things that he says. He says, in earlier ages, personal meaning was something discovered by individuals through being educated in how to locate themselves within established external structures such as family, church, or nation, right? So in times past, that's how people tended to answer the question, who are you? They tended to answer that question in relation to external structures, their family, the church, their nation. And so they, who am I in relation to those external things? However, today, he goes on to say, the notions that human flourishing is found primarily in an inner sense of well-being, that authenticity is found by being able to act outwardly as one feels inwardly, and that who we are is largely a matter of personal choice, not external imposition, have become common intuitions. In other words, this is, this is how we have come to, to just naturally think. In fact, we, we don't even really question this anymore. And so we tend to think that, we tend to think about things like human flourishing is found primarily in an inner sense of well-being. That, that isn't necessarily the way that people have always thought. In fact, Truman has an interesting analogy or, or a story that he tells. He says, if you were to go back in time and ask my grandfather, and his grandfather was like a, a sheet metal worker, and, and you would have asked him about his job satisfaction, he said you'd first probably have to explain to him what job satisfaction meant. Like he wouldn't even necessarily understand what, what does that mean, job satisfaction. And then he kind of explained, you know, are you, are you happy with your job? Do you like your job? Is it a good job? Are you satisfied with your job? And his grandfather probably would have said, well, yes, it's a good job. Why? Because I can provide for my family. They have food to eat, we have a roof over our head, they have shoes on their, their feet, they, they, have, they have clothes and food and all the things that we need, so it's a satisfactory job. But if you had asked this guy, Carl, now, are you satisfied with your job, he wouldn't have even thought of it in the same terms in relation to his family. He would have thought about it in terms of, does it make me personally happy? Do I enjoy this? And you see how that's a, just a very different, fundamentally different way of thinking about our life and thinking about satisfaction and fulfillment and what it is that I'm trying to do, what it is that I'm trying to accomplish, what does it mean to be human? And again, I'm not saying that the old way was, was perfect and the new way is, is all bad, but again, the way that we tend to think about human flourishing is a matter of internal well-being. We have turned ourselves almost entirely in on ourselves, where everything revolves around, well, what do I think about this? How do I feel about this? Does this make me happy? Does this satisfy me emotionally? And then there's this concept of authenticity, which is incredibly important in our culture today. You don't have to agree with it, but, but it is important that you understand it. This concept of authenticity in today's world doesn't just mean being honest, it means being your true self. 
looking in and, and finding what is it that I desire, what is it that I want, what, how is it that I feel, and then living externally like you feel internally, our modern world sees that as important, that the only way to really be happy is to live externally as you feel internally. And again, we've all sort of been captured by this way of thinking. In fact, Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, said in a court ruling, he expressed this modern concept of the way we all tend to think, but, but this became part of constitutional law. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. I just want us to stop and think about that for a second. That's one thing to say that the state doesn't have a right to define these things. But should we go so far as to say that every personal individual has a right to define for themselves their own concept of existence and meaning? Should we say that every individual has the right to define for themselves the, the meaning of the universe, the mystery of human life? Do, do, I, do I have the right to define for myself what, what it means to be human or what the, the meaning of the universe is? Well, again, it's one thing for us to, to live in a, in a culture where we say, hey, I'm going I'm to give you the freedom and the liberty to, to do that. And I'm not going to tell you what, what I think that you should think about the meaning of life or the meaning of the universe. But it's another thing for me to be so shaped by this that I actually begin to think that I have the right to define for myself what, what the meaning of life is, what the meaning of existence is. So here's a few, a few thoughts. The modern culture's beliefs about the self. Just see if, if these things seem like, yeah, this, is, this tends to be the way that we think about things. That every individual has the right to be their true, authentic self, to discover, to shape, and to express their own personal identity. In fact, a lot of people would even say, you, don't, you not only have the right to do that, you have the responsibility to do that. You have the responsibility to, to shape your own personal, unique identity. Let me just pause for a second right here. Most of us in this room are over a certain age, and so that this may not apply to you as much as it does to your kids or to your grandkids. But I, I want you to understand what an exhausting ideology this is. What an exhausting, heavy, burdensome ideology it is. Our young people are growing up being told that they have to create their own self, their own identity from scratch. That they have to create their, their entire meaning of existence for themselves from scratch. That they can't start on the shoulders of anyone else. They have to create it from scratch. Now, of course, of course, everyone does. Everyone does learn from others and, and is patterning themselves after other people. It's why Every single one of us as teenagers, we all said we all wanted to be unique and express ourselves, and we ended up dressing just like all of our friends, right? That was our definition of being unique, was being just like our friends. But it's exhausting, isn't it? 
It's exhausting being told you have to, you have to completely create your own identity from scratch. On the one hand, it sounds like a tremendous amount of freedom. You can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. But it's exhausting just picking out clothes in the morning, isn't it? Much less exhausting being told you have to create a definition of what it means to be a human. You have to create a definition of what the meaning of life is. That nobody else can tell you what the meaning of life is. You have to discover that and define that for yourself. That is exhausting. And I want to I gather up every young person in the country and give them a big hug. Because they are growing up with an incredibly heavy weight around their neck being told that this is their, not only their right, but their responsibility to do for themselves. Number two, happiness can only be achieved by living authentically, by acting outwardly as one feels inwardly. Now again, again, that seems like there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that. Whatever you feel, whatever you feel like doing, whatever you feel makes you happy, like go and do that, express your, your true, authentic self. But again, that's exhausting too, isn't it? Because I don't know about anybody else. I can't see anybody else's feelings or emotions, but mine are all over the place. Aren't yours? I mean, have you ever just had one constant, one constant feeling? Most of us fluctuate in how we feel and what we want and what we desire. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to express all of that externally, what I'm feeling and thinking internally. And being told that that's the only way you're ever going to be happy. The only way you're ever going to be happy is to live authentically, to express on the outside what you're feeling on the inside. Number three, living a moral life is about doing what makes you happy and allowing others to do what makes them happy. I've mentioned this before, but a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith uh, wrote a book and did some research, and, and he and those with whom he worked uh, came up with this term called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. And they said moralistic therapeutic deism is the major religion of the United States. That that's what most people are. They're moralistic therapeutic deists. They're not Christians in a traditional sense. Even though many of them claim to be Christians, they're not Christians in a traditional sense. And especially when they were interviewing teenagers, they asked teenagers about their beliefs and what they thought about their religion and their faith and their practices. And they didn't talk much about the Lord's Supper, or baptism, or worship, or praise, or holiness, or sanctification, or justification, or those sorts of theological ideas that are rooted in Scripture. They talked mostly about being happy, about being happy, because we live in a therapeutic culture. And, and again, this is fairly unique and fairly recent, but we're, we're told that this is what it means to be human. Do what makes you happy. Look inside, figure out what's going to make you happy, and then go do that, and then let other people do whatever makes them happy. You pursue your happiness and let other people pursue their happiness. The downside, though, again, that, that seems like there's a ton of freedom in that, but actually there's also a ton of bondage in that as well. And people aren't any happier now than they were in the past, and many times they're less happy than they were in the past. And again, I'm not saying the past was great and the present is awful. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, there, there's good things about sort of the, the direction that we've gone, but this overcorrection and the way that we tend to conceptualize self 
and, and what, what exactly we're supposed to be doing and what life is all about and what morality is. Again, again, for so many modern people, their idea of morality is simply live and let live. And I mean, trust me, I'd rather live in a culture that says live and let live than one that's like a, a horrible dictatorship. I don't want to live in that either. But drinking this water, internalizing this ideology is toxic. If we really believe that, that all it takes to be a moral person is to do what makes you happy or what you believe will make you happy in the moment and let other people do what makes them happy in the moment, that's very short-sighted, I think. Number five, it is immoral. Again, this is the modern culture's beliefs about the self. It is immoral and oppressive to put pressure on others to conform to a particular way of life. The modern person, think about a lot of the, the movies that you've watched, a lot of the family movies that you've watched. Sort of the, the point is that the, the family and the parents are being so oppressive and mean because they want their child to follow in their footsteps and do things their way. By the way, that's the way human beings have lived for the vast majority of human history. The vast majority of human history, parents have told their kids, this is what people like us do, and they've done that thing. But now we've come to believe that that's oppressive, that it's a form of violence to sort of encourage someone or pressure someone, to put any sort of pressure on someone at all, to conform to our expectations. But again, there's a double standard here, isn't there? Because every culture, including the modern culture, puts pressure on people to think a certain way and to live a certain way, to do things in a certain way. All of these things are being pressured upon people, think like this, do things like this. And so again, there's, the, there's this sort of double standard here that we, we have to be incredibly careful of. And again, I, I don't want to act like this is them. This is us. This is the way we all tend to think, isn't it? We all tend to think, just let me do me. Let me live my life. Let me figure it out for myself. I just want to be what I want to be, and I don't want anybody pressuring me to conform or to do things their way. We've all internalized this, and again, there's some good that goes along with this. But we kind of have to stop and say, is this the, is this the biblical view? Is this the gospel view? Is this what really leads to human flourishing? Is this what's going to lead to my ultimate happiness? Is me just defining for myself who I am, naming myself, and directing myself, and being Lord over myself? As we said a couple weeks ago, what we've essentially done is we've made the self into an idol, haven't we? We have made the self deified. We have made the self the new God, where we answer only to self. We let self define us. We let self direct us. We let self lead us. Now, add to this the fact that we also live in a hyper-sexualized society. Not only do we have all of this sort of working on us and shaping the way that we think, we also live in a hyper-sexualized society. When you think about the ancient world, if you had talked to an ancient person, somebody from Rome or Greece or even from Israel, and you were to ask them about sexual activities, they knew sexual activities. 
Okay, they, they weren't foolish on sexual activities. They knew about every sexual activity. We haven't invented any new sexual activities. All sexual activities had been explored and experimented with. We haven't, we haven't invented anything new. And so in the ancient world, sexual activity was one thing. But in the modern world, what we have invented is sexual identity. In the ancient world, sex was something you do, but in the modern world, especially after Freud and others, in the modern world, sex is something you are. And that, that is a new way of thinking about things. So that we conceptualize ourselves, we identify ourselves according to sexual attraction. I was thinking even about the word heterosexual. If I were to say to you, I'm a heterosexual man, nobody would even think anything of that. But if you had tried to explain that to the apostles or to Jesus, that idea would have been like, what do you mean you're a heterosexual man? What does that even mean? What does that mean? What does it mean for, for someone who hasn't even engaged in sexual activity to identify themselves, to have as their identity who they're attracted to? This is a new concept, a new concept that goes back to this modern idea about the self. And again, you take all of this and combine this with the fact that we live in a hypersexualized age, that it has become normal to think of our identity as who we're attracted to. And, and where sex has become not just something you do, but something you are. And so people, especially again young people, but not just young people, we, we are saturated in this environment with the ideology that your job is to look inside yourself and to figure out who you are, especially sexually, and then express externally what you're feeling internally. There are all kinds of problems with this way of thinking. All kinds of problems with this way of thinking. And again, I'm not just, talk, I'm not just talking about, about certain sexual activities and behaviors that Scripture says are immoral in and of themselves. I'm talking about the ideology that we've all sort of adopted. So much so that Holly was sharing with me about a celebrity, a singer not too long ago, who, who got a divorce, and she divorced her husband. I may come back to this later in, in another lesson, but she divorced her husband, and she, she sang about it, wrote about it, talked about it, whatever it was, about why she divorced her husband. And she said that for the last few months or years, whatever it was, that she was wearing her wedding ring, that she was living a lie. See, that goes back to the modern culture's belief about the self. That they believe that they have a moral responsibility to live on the outside what they're feeling on the inside. And so, and so we, we, people today, we get divorced because of this. We get married because of this. We sleep with people because of this. We look at pornography because of this. Because we have conceptualized ourselves that way, where our desires and our wants are king. They rule over us. We are defined by our desires. We are lorded over by our desires. We are enslaved by our desires. But it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to think about ourselves this way. The gospel gives us another way to conceptualize the self. 
The gospel gives us a new way to think about ourselves. Now, stay with me if you would. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When he talks about the Gentiles, he's talking about the unbelievers. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous, unable to feel, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That idea of sensuality means lack of self-restraint, self-abandonment. But Paul doesn't write this. Pay attention to why he's saying what he's saying. He's not saying this so that you'll be angry at them or so that you'll hate them, so that the church at Ephesus would hate their unbelieving neighbors. It's not, it's not to say be mad at them, be angry at them, treat them as your enemies. They're not your enemies. They're not your enemies. But neither are they your guides. He, he begins this part. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't follow their example. Don't follow their example, which means for us in our culture, in our time, we're going to have to stop and not just ask, ask what are the Gentiles doing, but how are the Gentiles thinking? How is it that their thinking is, is sort of bleeding over and influencing me? And, and do I need to change the way that I think about myself and my, my life and my role and who I am and who God is calling me to be and what it means to engage in sexuality or in sexual activity. So don't, don't treat them like your enemy, but neither treat them like your guide. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, our, our current culture says that there are two selves. There is your repressed self, the repressed self that you kind of show to people, but it's not who you really want to be. It's the repressed self that you kind of show to people, but you're, you have this authentic self, this true self that's inside. And it's just waiting to break out and that you need to let your authentic self out. And that's how the current culture tells you to think about and conceptualize yourself, that you have your repressed self, what everybody else is making you do, what your spouse is making you do, what your parents are making you do, what society is making you do, what the church is making you do, what, what you know, your family is making you do, and then you've got your inner self. And that inner self just wants to break out and be free. And our culture is saying that authentic self, that's your real true self. Listen to that inner self. But the gospel gives us a new way to conceptualize ourself and a new way to conceptualize that sort of two selves. And it's not the repressed self and the inner self. It's the old self and the new self. There's the old self, the old West. The old West that did what West wanted to do. Because the truth is, I've let the inner self out and I've reaped the consequences. That I've lived according to my desires and my desires, by the way, are deceitful. My desires are deceitful because they say one thing and they deliver another. And we have to recognize that about our desires, don't we? 
The modern culture won't tell you that. The modern culture won't tell you that desires are deceitful. They'll tell you that desires always fulfill, but you know better than that, don't you? You know that our desires say one thing and deliver another. Our desires are insatiable, insatiable. And if you allow your desires to define you and direct you and enslave you, they will never deliver on their promises. Never, never. Not not just their desires, my desires. My desires are insatiable. And those desires belong to the old self. But I can have a new self. I can be a new self. Not a new self that's me naturally. See, this isn't me trying to lie and try to be something that I'm not or pretend to be better than I am. This is me saying, Jesus is giving me a new self. The Holy Spirit is giving me a new self a new identity, and I'm going to lean into that and live into that. Imperfectly, imperfectly, we all are, imperfectly. But we need to live into and lean into that new identity in Christ. But, he says, that is not, oh, we already read that part. Let's go down to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, you are God's children whom he loves, so try to be like him. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God. This, this is your true identity. This is your identity. Your identity is you are God's what? Children. You are God's children. That's why we began this series the way that we did in lesson one. We orient ourselves around the love of God. God loves you. You have desires? Okay. You don't know what to do with your desires? Okay. So does everybody here. Everybody here has desires that we don't know what to do with. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that you're irredeemable. It doesn't mean that something is weird with you or wrong with you. This is the way all of us are. All of us are. You've acted on those desires. You've given in to those desires. You've indulged those desires. So has everyone here. And if you're in Christ, you are God's children and he loves you. That's your new identity. That's your new identity. You're not gonna allow your desires to define you. You're going to allow the love of God to define you. This is who I am. Now again, that doesn't mean be dishonest about your desires. It doesn't mean pretend you don't have those desires. It doesn't mean suppress your desires. It means surrender your desires. We're gonna say, yes, I I struggle. Yes, I messed up. Yes, I've, I've given in to those desires way too many times, but this is my identity. My identity is I am God's child, so I'm going to try to be like him. Verse three, but there must... There must be no sexual sin among you or any kind of evil or greed. Those things are not right for God's holy people. Again, that's your identity. That's your new identity. Not not an identity that you have achieved, an identity that you have received. God has given you this identity. You are his children and you are holy. You are holy. Whatever your desires are, you are holy. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are holy. You are God's children. Whatever you've done in the past, you are holy. You are God's children. So believe that identity, accept that identity, and live into that identity. Verse 5, you can be sure of this. No one will have a place in the kingdom of Christ and of God who sins sexually or does evil things. 
Again, as we started, when you read these kinds of things in Scripture, recognize that, that in the first century, and I believe the way we should think now, sexual sin is not about what you desire. Sexual sin is about what you do. Sexual sin isn't about what you desire. It's about what you do. Your desires do not define you. The love of Christ defines you. So live into that identity and live that out. Do not, do not allow your old self and those old desires to define you and direct you. Listen to what he says in Colossians 3, Paul in Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ when you were baptized, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your what? Your life. When Christ is your life, this is the only way. This is the only way. Our current culture tells you your desires have to be your life. Go fulfill your desires. Go live those things out. If you want to look at pornography, then go look at pornography. If you want to leave your spouse, leave your spouse. If you want to sleep with this person, sleep with this person. If you want to do this, do that. If you want to dress this way, dress this way. If you want to do this thing, do this thing. If you want to, whatever. Our current culture tells us to live out and live by and make our desires our life. To have a story and to be in a story that revolves around us. In fact, here's how we could put it. Culture offers you a starring role in a story that will ultimately be about your tragically unfulfilled desires. And that's true for all of us. If you live a story that is about fulfilling your desires, it will be a tragedy. You don't think it will be in the moment. You think, all I need to do is leave my, leave my wife for this other woman. All I need to do is leave my husband for this other man, and then I'm going to be happy because they're my true love. But I guarantee you that if you live a story and you keep living a story and you don't stop living a story that revolves around your desires, where you're the main character in a story about you, then it will end in your tragically unfulfilled desires because your desires are insatiable. They are insatiable. And you will never fulfill them all. And they will always leave you wanting more. Christ, on the other hand, offers you a supporting role in a story about how he will successfully bring justice and glory and fulfillment to all of God's people. That's the story I want to be a part of. I don't want to be in a story that centers around me. I don't want to be the main character in a story about me. All I want to be is a supporting character in a story about Jesus. I want to define myself in relation to him. And really, I want to define myself in relation to you. I tell you every single week, I love you. My identity is about who I am in relation to Jesus, to my family, to my church. My identity is about who I am in relation to all of these things. And this is a much bigger story, and I would argue a much better story, and a story that is guaranteed to end in success and victory, 
But if you live a story that is about you, a story that revolves around you, I guarantee it will end in tragedy and unfulfilled desires. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. And Father, it is a a heavy thing to try to question and push back against the cultural flows, the way that culture thinks and tells us to think and shapes us to think. But Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see and and a heart to discern what is true and what is right and what is good. Help us, Father, to define ourselves in relation to you, in relation to your love, in relation to your son Jesus, in relation to your spirit, in relation to your people. Father, help us to live into that that reality and that identity, no matter how imperfectly we do that. Help us, Father, to, to live out, to be imitators of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.